three people in here. I thought all you dads decided to sleep in for the morning. Glad you made it out. Happy Father's Day to you. Outline. It's good to have the Bonzers with us again this Sunday. Uh, we're down here for little Tegan's birthday, I believe. So that was yesterday. So I'd like to invite you to turn with me to John 14. Thank you to Paul and David who covered for me the past two weeks, brought the word, ministered uh, to you um, very well. And, uh, I'm excited to get back into John. And, uh, we are in John 14 now. So let me ask you, when was the last time that you were troubled by something? By troubled, I mean that punch-in-the-gut feeling that you get when something unexpected or tragic or painful takes place. The feeling that things just ought not to be this way. Perhaps it was from the diagnosis of a terminal illness of a loved one, or the sudden loss of a job, or the pain of being done wrong to by somebody, or just the feeling of despair that you get when your world seems to be falling apart. Well, that is just the way the disciples feel in our passage this morning. Christ has just announced to them that he's about to depart from them, and they cannot go where he is going. Up to this point, the disciples are unaware that Jesus will be dead in a matter of hours. But now in the upper room, during the Passover meal, Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for his departure. And where we were last time, at the end of chapter 13, with Judas finally out of the room and the events of the Passion Week now underway, Jesus announces to the eleven that he's going away. They cannot come with him. And on top of that, he declares that Peter, the leader of the twelve, is going to deny him three times. And it was with these predictions that left the disciples in a state of shock, even of despair. They are troubled. They've embraced Jesus as their Messiah. They've witnessed his awesome signs. They've been changed by his life-giving words. They've believed in his promises about the kingdom. They love him. They cannot imagine being without him. And now he's telling them that he's leaving. And not only that, but his disciples are going to deny him, and they're going to be scattered. So they're, they're saying things like, has all of this been for nothing? Has Jesus failed as the Messiah? Are God's plans being thwarted? Are his enemies winning? How could this be anything other than very bad news? And their hearts are troubled. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. He says that because their hearts are troubled. Now, this is a very familiar passage. Uh, where do we normally hear this passage quoted or read? At funerals. But it's important to remember that Christ was addressing this particular passage to his disciples in a certain context not directly to ours. 
But when we understand what's really going on here, the, the context, he's addressing it to the disciples, we'll really be able to make appropriate application to our lives. And it is appropriate at, at funerals. The disciples are troubled. Jesus' words have caused them to be filled with fear, confusion, sorrow. But now he wants to teach them that they do not need to have trouble about anything that he said to them. In fact, it's actually to their benefit that he go away. But why and how? And that is our text this morning. In verses 1 through 6 of chapter 14, we are going to get two remedies for hearts troubled by the departure of Jesus. Two remedies. The first remedy that Jesus gives is the commandment that his disciples are not to be troubled. It says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now it's possible to read these words as a sharp rebuke, like stop being troubled, you, you, you ignorant disciples. It's also possible to read this as a trite consolation, like um, tell somebody in sorrow, just, just stop being sorrowful. It's okay. Things will turn out. That, that's not what Jesus is, is doing here. Yes, he is giving them a commandment, and he is redirecting their emotions, but he's doing it with the aim of strengthening and comforting them. So let's investigate this commandment a bit, a bit further. It is first a command of comfort. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. We've already seen this word troubled a few times so far in John. Three times, actually, and each time... Who was the one who was troubled? It was, it was Jesus. He was troubled at the tomb of Lazarus. He was troubled when his hour had arrived. And he was troubled with the presence of Judas in the room who was about to betray him. So all three occasions, Jesus is, is troubled. But if Jesus is troubled, then how in the world can now he direct his disciples for them not to be troubled? Isn't that a bit of hypocrisy, Jesus? Here you are. And all this trouble, and now you're telling the disciples not to be troubled. And the answer is that Jesus' trouble was proper. But the disciples' trouble was improper. You see, Jesus was greatly troubled because of the cup of wrath that he was about to drink. He was troubled by the horrors of the hour that he was about to endure. But while all of those events will mean his trouble and agony, they only mean salvation and good for his own. Jesus was troubled so that his disciples would not be troubled. He endured agony so that the disciples would know salvation and peace. He gives them this command not to rebuke them or to belittle their distress, but to comfort them. He is saying, as shocking as all that it is that I've told you, as horrific as all of these events will be, there's absolutely no reason for you to experience any trouble, agony, or distress. It is for your salvation and good. But so long as the disciples continue to be troubled, it's evident that they have not yet understood what Christ is about to accomplish. And while we don't experience the same kind of turmoil that the disciples are right here, 
These truths are also meant to comfort us in our sorrows. Our troubles may be real and difficult, but Christ is teaching us that because of his work, he has removed the sting from them all. Our greatest problem has been dealt with. Our sin has been atoned for. While we will still experience suffering and sorrow, we do not do so as people without hope. We do so as people for whom Christ has removed the greatest trouble of all. And that is how he's comforting his disciples. So it is a command of comfort. It's also a command to rest. It's a command to rest. Look at the rest of the verse. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The word here, believe, doesn't mean just mental assent. Believe there is a God. That's not what he's saying. It, it, it means to personally trust, to rely on. We read in the Psalms repeatedly of taking refuge in God, right? Depending on God in the midst of trouble, relying on his character. And that's where Jesus directs his disciples. They must respond with confident trust in the Father and in Christ. Notice quickly how Jesus elevates himself to the same level of trust with the Father. Trust in God, trust also in me. This time in salvation history, any trust in the Father is impossible apart from trust in Christ. And any trust in Christ is impossible apart from trust in the Father. They go together. And that's where he directs his disciples. To be distressed by the events of Christ reveals a failure to trust the Father and to trust Christ. And the remedy is a renewed attitude of dependence on the character and the promises of the Father and the Son. Mm -hmm. And again, the same is true for us. Jesus is saying that we cannot, he's not saying that we cannot or should not feel sorrow or confusion or even emotions of, of fear in times of distress and, and hardship. We do. That's natural. But he is saying that when that turns into a posture of wringing our hands as though something is out of control, or a fretful fearfulness and, and worry and despair, we have a serious deficiency of faith in the Father and Christ as we are. He's calling the disciples trust in God, trust also in me. An attitude of distress like this is just as inappropriate as when I'm holding my daughter in the swimming pool and all she can be concerned about is drowning. And I took them to the beach a couple weeks ago, took them into the waves. First couple days they're afraid, looking at the deep water, the big waves. But I, I love them. I'm not going to let them go. I care for them. Trust me. Depend on me. But so long as they're fretful and fearful about the waves and the water, they're belittling my trust, my, my love, my goodness, my wisdom, my ability. That's what Jesus is saying here. Trust in God. Trust his character. Don't call it into question. <coughs> but does Jesus give us any help here? Does he just leave us with a general concept of trusting God, or does he give us specifics for us to hold on to? And he does. And that is the next remedy. Look with me at verses 2 through 6. He gives the reasons for why disciples are not to be troubled. Specifics we can lay hold on by faith. 
And in the rest of the verses, he will tell them that his departure should not cause them to be troubled, but should be understood as good news. He's going away, but it is only so that they might be with him permanently. And this time in the glory and bliss of the Father's presence. Most of you in here know the story of Mei Mei and I. Uh, we were married in China. Um, and uh, the process it took to get her here to the States after we were married. We were married in June of 2014 in China. And uh, in order for her to return with me to the States, we had to apply for a green card. Um, so I stayed with her the entire summer there in China. Um, I think through mid-August probably. And expecting surely that by the end of the summer, her green card would be finished, processed, and she would be able to return with me. Yet unbeknownst to me, the government goes a little bit slower than that, and the process of a green card um, takes quite a bit longer. I ended up having to leave China, leave her in China, um, and come back here to the States. Um, I had my seminary. I was completing my final year. I had work I had to return to so that I could support her as my wife, which was a requirement for a green card. So long story short, it was not until April of the following year that her green card was finally approved. Um, so it was about nine months before she was finally able to get over here and she was able to be with me. And as hard as that separation between us was, it was in a sense necessary so that we would never be separated again. And it was that hope which sustained us through that long process. And I think this is similar to what Jesus is teaching here. It's necessary he goes away. But the disciples shouldn't be troubled by it because it's only that they might be with him again, but this time in the presence of the Father in the Father's house. So let's look at these reasons that Jesus gives. The first is found here in verses, verse 2a. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. What is the Father's house? Encountered, encountered this uh, phrase back in chapter 2. It referred to the temple. Jesus said, my father's house is a house of, of prayer, right? It was the earthly dwelling of God. But here, the father's house is the place to where Jesus is going. It, it clearly refers to heaven, the father's heavenly abode. And in this house, Jesus says, in the father's heavenly dwelling are many dwelling places or abodes. Now, most of us are probably familiar with the King James rendering here. What is it? My father's house are many what? Many mansions, right? Um, there's songs <laughs> about this, right? I get a mansion just over the hilltop. How many in here actually know that song? Anyone? A few of you? Okay. Um, we get the picture in our minds of these massive, gorgeous houses with green manicured lawns and perhaps a fountain out front and wrought iron gates around it. And uh, perhaps even degrees of mansions, depending on the, 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 the reward you're going to be getting. That's not at all what this word means, um, or what Jesus is, is teaching here. The word simply means abodes, or better, rooms. The focus is not on the lavishness of the rooms, but on their abundance. Look what he says. There are many rooms. The picture is not of many individual houses, but of one large house with many rooms or many dwelling places in it. 
So I think Jesus is making two points here. Number one is that there is more than enough room to house all of Christ's disciples. There's abundant provision of space which is large enough for Christ's own, which can house billions of believers. Number two, it's not a hotel. It's a house. It's a home. It's a picture of one family. A picture of Christ in his father's house. He dwells there with his father. And it's large enough to bring all of his own into his family. It's the first comfort. It's the first reason they are to trust him and the father. But next, the departure of Christ... In the cross is to prepare a place for his own in the Father's house. Look at the rest of the verse. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? There's a couple ways we can read that. There's the ESV, like I just read. I think the NASB has it a little better. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I'm going to prepare a place for you. Jesus is saying, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. And if that is not true, I would have told you that there are no dwelling places. But there are many dwelling places in my Father's house. And I'm telling you this because I'm going away to prepare a place for you in those rooms. He implies that these rooms in the Father's house exist prior to his preparing a place for the disciples there. He says he's going away to prepare a place for the disciple in these rooms in the Father's house. In other words, there is nothing in the rooms themselves that are lacking preparation. It's not as though heaven is in disrepair somehow, and Christ just needs to be up there fixing it up a bit before disciples can come. The only thing needing preparation is the way into these rooms for his disciples, a place for these disciples in these rooms. Now, how then does Jesus go to prepare a place? Where is he going? To the the cross. He's going to the Father through the cross. And it would be through his work on the cross that he prepares a place and makes it possible for his disciples to enter the heavenly abode of the Father and become part of his family. Through the cross, he completely cleanses you from your sin. He atones for your sin. He accomplishes all that's necessary to bring you into the family of God and into the eternal presence of the Holy Father. He's going to the cross to prepare a place for you. He's telling them it's necessary and good that he goes because that's what he's doing as he departs. Number three, it's not all. He gives us a third reason. The purpose of Christ is to return to his disciples so they might be with him forever. Verse three. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus now takes it a step further. The very fact that he's going to prepare a place for his disciples makes it clear that he was not done with his disciples. 
He was not departing from them, never to be with them again. But he will indeed return to bring them with him, to dwell with him in heaven. And in this verse, the focus shifts from dwelling in the Father's house to dwelling with Christ in the Father's house. He says, I'll receive you to myself, so that where I am, there you might be also. Jesus has come from the Father, and he's going back to the Father. But his mission and the Father's mission was that he would not return alone, but that he would return such that he would bring all of his own to be with him there. But why? What was he aiming at accomplishing? Look at the, the verse again. He says, so that where I am, there you may be also. We get this exact phrase again in chapter 17, verse 24. So go over there with me. Chapter 17, verse 24. What is Jesus after? What's his main goal in bringing the disciples to himself? Is Jesus praying in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Exact same phrase. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The goal of Christ's work is not only the forgiveness of sins, it's not even only your entrance into heaven. Those are just the means into the ends. The ultimate goal is that we would be made to be with Christ to gaze upon his glory, which he enjoyed from the Father. Or put it this way, the aim of the Father was to glorify his Son so that many would come to experience the joy and the love and the pleasure that the Father enjoyed from eternity in his Son. And the aim of the Son was to glorify the Father so that people would come to gaze on his glory, which was none other than the glory of his own Father. That's what he's after. So what does heaven mean for you? What makes heaven, heaven? Sadly for many, it's not this. Reunion with loved ones, no sickness and death, the beauty and the pleasure of the place, all of those good, true things. But were heaven to be without these things and only consisted of the glory of Christ and the glory of the Father, would you be unsatisfied? Or if heaven were only those other things and lacking the glory and the presence of the Father and the Son, could you easily be satisfied? I'm afraid those in such a condition are probably not going there. The only ones who are going to heaven are those who love and long to be with Christ. Jesus' words in these verses are good news and great comfort to true disciples. But those who've never experienced Christ's goodness or his love or seen his glory now in this life, they will never long to see it in the life to come. This verse will provide no comfort for them at all. But for those of us who have come to love Christ because he first loved us, 
We long to be with him. And the promise in this verse will be the greatest comfort of all in our lives. I've been reading through Pilgrim's Progress, second time through now, with Evelina for our uh, bedtime stories. And uh, a repeated theme through the book is the longing of true pilgrims to be in the celestial city. It's what drove them through their journeys. But false pilgrims had no zeal to get there. They were content to hang out a while in Vanity Fair or to take a nap on the enchanted ground. But the difference between true pilgrims and false was that true pilgrims had come by the way of the cross. They had come to know the love of the king. That's what drove them to be with him. But the rest had not known his love. They had no love for him. Heaven is certainly a more desirable place than the alternative. But it was not what they longed for. The evidence that we've come by the way of the cross and have experienced the love and the glory of Christ in this life is that we desire to be with him. As I was preparing this lesson, I was convicted how little I desire to be with Christ. How little these words actually comforted my heart. How easy it is to grow cold and grow contented with this world and to fall asleep on our journey. That's the danger in Pilgrim's Progress. They fall asleep. They never wake up. Why? Why do we do that? Why do we grow cold? If Christ is this glorious, if we've really tasted and seen, I think the answer is simple. To the extent that I neglect communion with Christ now, to the extent that I fail to behold his glories here, to that extent I will fail to desire to be with him. We have to maintain that. To the extent that the world fills my focus and the world satisfies my heart, to that extent heaven will seem like a loss or at least something a bit less desirable. And the call is for us to repent from stuffing our souls full of the world so that there's no room for Christ. No room for fellowship with Christ. The call is to spend more time meditating on the gospel than we do on Facebook. The call is to spend more time in focused prayer, praise, and adoration. It's not a call to leave the world altogether or leave our responsibilities in the world, but to live in the world as people whose hearts are set on being with Christ. That's the goal of Christ's work, that we be with him in the Father's presence. But we cannot pretend that that is our desire and that is our coming inheritance if we have no experience of it in this life. We are deceiving ourselves. So that's what Christ is after. That's the goal of his work, and it's great comfort to believers. Come back to our text, chapter 14, verse 3. It says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. Now when he says, I'll come again, what is he referring to? The majority of commentators, scholars, um, say that it, it's referring to the second coming of, of Christ. And certainly that's true. He's coming again to receive his own. 
But I think Jesus has something a bit more immediate in mind here. Look down in verse 18 of this chapter. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Same phrase. How's he going to come to them there? It is in the resurrection. I'll come to you. I think he means that after making the preparations of verse 3, going to the cross, he will come in the resurrection, having accomplished all that was necessary for them to enter the heavenly presence with him. Certainly we'll experience that at his second coming. But we experience it now through our death. Right? That's what he told Peter. End of chapter 13, you will follow me afterward. How? As Peter dies, death martyrdom follows Christ to the joys of the Father's presence. So that's the reason for comfort, why they should trust in Christ and trust in God. Finally, the pathway to the Father is exclusively by union with Christ. Look at verse 4. <clears throat> and you know the way to where I am going. Jesus knows that while the disciples do know the way, because they know Jesus, yet they don't know that they know the way. And so Jesus brings this up to get them thinking, move them in that direction. Verse 5, Thomas speaks up. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas speaks on behalf of all the disciples. They're confused, exasperated. They still don't even know where Jesus is going. They're, they're, they're missing all of his references to the Father. And now Jesus wants to make it explicit to them and to us in verse 6. With, with the sixth I am statement of the Gospel of John. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus gives them the destination. It is what? It is the Father. No one comes to the Father. That's the destination. That's where he's going. And he gives them the way. I am the way. He is the way, the only way to the Father. Well, why? Because he is the truth and the life. He's the truth. He perfectly reveals God to us. He speaks all of God's words to us. He's the life. He is the eternal source of life, being very God of very God. Through his cross and resurrection, he provides eternal life. And as this, he is the exclusive access to the Father. There's no other way to the Father except in union with Christ. It's the only way you're getting there. It's being united to Christ. Only Christ is the truth, only he's the life, and only he is the way to the Father. That's what makes Christianity so offensive. It is its exclusivity in Jesus Christ alone. At this point in salvation history, faith in Christ is the ultimate revelation of God, and the ultimate life from God is the only means whereby any come to the Father. And that's ours by faith. Trust him. Receive him at the cross. What are some implications, really quickly, for us from that, just the exclusivity, this statement, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
How should that impact us? What do you think? It's urgency. It's urgency. Yeah. It's good. It should fuel our evangelism, right? It's unapologetic in our evangelism. I mean, the, the, I mean, the, the definite articles here are pretty clear. It's the way, the truth, the life. So we should be unapologetic in preaching that. There is no other way. It would be unloving to express that there is. Don't let anyone tell you that that is just a Puritan invention. Jesus speaks it here. He's the only way. He's the exclusive way to the Father. She fills us with unceasing gratitude that we have been made partakers of the way of Christ. By faith alone, through his cross, because of that we'll be brought with him to enjoy his glories in the Father's presence. This would it have some, some application to prayer as well? As we come to, to the Father in prayer, we come through Jesus Christ. We can't come any other way than through Christ, even to the Father in prayer. Amen. I think so. And I think that's where Jesus goes. How do we experience this now in this life? So we're going to see in the rest of chapter 14. It's through the Holy Spirit and certainly practically in prayer. It's a really good observation. So we're about out of time. Brothers and sisters. Let not your hearts be troubled. <coughs> troubled by any number of troubles and hardships in, in this world. There's much comfort to be had. And no reason for distress if you know these truths. There's ample room for you in the Father's presence in His house. Christ has gone to make abundant provision for you in the cross. Nothing's left to be done. He's come again in the resurrection and He will return again to take you to be with Himself which is his ultimate goal and your ultimate happiness. He's able to do this because he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. He's a great Savior. We have much to rejoice in and much comfort to be had. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. Oh, how good you are and how blind we are naturally. And even after you've given us new birth, Oh, God, we're tempted to hang out in Vanity Fair, be enamored by the trinkets, neglecting the most beautiful, soul-satisfying reality person in the universe. Lord, I ask that you would guard us. You would help us grow. Cause us to love Christ more because he first loved us. It's his purpose that we be with him that it would be our purpose as well as our prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Please prepare our hearts for the service to come. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.